18, John, John 18, um, um, recognizing something. Um, I guess I have some questions is what I'm thinking about, all these questions we might have. Um, everybody has different kinds of questions, and, and it, it occurs to me that while everyone, every question deserves a good answer, it, it occurs to me that there are some questions that are more important than others, and there are some questions that are actually, in fact, weightier than others. And so the question, what's for supper tonight, may be something that I might be concerned about, and it might be something that's important to me, but it carries, I think, far less weight than someone who has to ask, is there going to be supper tonight? The question, what type of stock should I put my retirement in, is a good question. And yet I think that it doesn't seem to equal the question, where am I going to sleep tonight? The question of what am I going to do on Friday night? Am I going to go to the movies? Am I going to go to the bowling? Um, maybe I'll take, Maybe are we going to take in a ball game or go fishing or you, you fill in the blank? Those are good questions or that's a good question. But it pales, I think, when compared to the question, will our house survive the storm? The question, are there really such things as extraterrestrial beings? Maybe a fun, thought-provoking question for sci-fi junkies. But it doesn't hold a question to the candle, or it doesn't hold a candle to the question, is there a God and does it matter? I think that everyone around us has questions. And one of the greatest questions ever asked, maybe the most famous question ever asked in Scripture was asked by Pilate as he cross-examined Jesus to determine if there were any reasons that he should convict him and have him put to death. But look at John chapter 18, starting with uh, verse uh, 33, and just listen to this exchange. You've heard this text before, but it's an incredible exchange. Um, John chapter 18, verse number 33 Pilate then went back inside the palace. Jesus, of course, is, being, is standing before Pilate. He's been arrested, and he's standing before the powers that be. Pilate goes back into his palace. He summons Jesus and asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asks, uh, Is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replies. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. And with this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? I, I don't know whether it was a genuine question that Pilate asked or whether Pilate even had a desire to even know the truth. I, I have no idea whether Pilate was seeking the truth 
or whether his question was just a cynical, contemptuous comment denying the possibility of knowing truth or even the existence of truth. Either way, it's a great question to ponder if you think about it. What is truth? Can, can, I, can I even know truth? Can, it, it is without a doubt the greatest question I think that we can ask. It is a question I believe that deserves to be answered. In fact, it is a question that demands to be answered. Truth, whatever it is or is not, determines the answer to life's most basic questions. Questions like, where did I come from? Why am I here? What is my reason for being? What's, what is my purpose? Does life have any meaning? What's wrong with this world? Or maybe even, what's wrong with me? Will it ever be made right? How about, where am I going? What will happen to me when I die? These are all important questions. They're essential questions. I think they're universal questions. And and how each person answers them determines how they will, in fact, live. How we answer them determines how we will approach our lives, how we will approach life itself. Now, to answer those questions, we have to go back to Pilate's question. What is truth? What is the basic, underlying, unchanging reality in life? What is the one constants that I can, I can base my life on, what is the foundation for all things like life and creation and, and morality and meaning. And in our world today, these questions are not easily answered. Many would actually say that the questions that I pose really have no meaning at all because there is no such thing as truth. In fact, we live in a society where things like morality are in the eye of the beholder. So what's wrong for you may not necessarily be wrong for me. What you deem as being immoral, that may in fact just be your truth and have no effect on me whatsoever. The big word for that is called relativism. And it's something that we really ought to, we ought to pay attention to that word or understand what that is. It just basically means that everything is relative. Everything can change depending on who it is. And in such a society, well, the way we respond is like, whatever. You know? Whatever. I mean, whatever works for you is okay. Whatever floats your boat is all right with me. There are no moral absolutes. There's nothing that you can really truly hang your hat on. There's nothing that you can count on to be true for all people in all places at all times. And in a morally relative, relativistic society, truth, and this is what you want to pay attention to, truth is something that we invent, not something that we discover. Let me say it a different way. Truth is something that we invent. It's not something that we discover. And, and therefore, truth does not exist independently outside of us, but rather it is something that we create within us. And it seems to me that there's some implications of that. And because to hold such a view means that, that there is nothing that we would have that would regulate morality. It means that there is no way that we would be able to distinguish between what is moral and what is immoral. There is no objective, 
immovable standard by which we can actually determine good from evil. In fact, those terms moral and immoral, uh, 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 of right and wrong, even truth and lie, they really have no meaning at all. Those terms only have meaning when there is some standard, when there is some ruler, when there is some plumb line of truth that we can compare them to or measure them against. Because that, and that means that you have, so practically speaking, that means you have no right to say that adultery is wrong for me. That may be your truth, but that's not my truth. You have no right to say that my business practices are unethical. That may be your truth, but that would not be my truth. You have no right to say that there is only one way to God and that all other ways are false. That is just not my truth. That, that, that's the world that we live in today. Blatantly, in your face, you can turn on the news, you can listen to people, and even in some of our own conversations, we have hints and residue of that type of philosophy within our world. It's the world that we live in today, and people would have us believe that those kinds of moral and ethical judgments are bigoted and intolerant because in their minds there is no truth. If there is no truth, if there is no absolute objective truth, then there is no rule or no measure by which my life and my actions and my speech and my moral judgments or my thoughts can be judged. That's the bottom line. The world would have us to believe that we cannot make those kinds of archaic value statements. I watched a program on the news this, or a um, program on the TV this last week, uh, well, Wednesday actually, on the news, 9-11, uh, remembering 9-11. I don't know if any of you guys got a chance to see that. And, and I remember this statement when it was made by President Bush and and what I'm sharing with you is, is, is not a political statement at all, just letting you know that. But I remember when, I remember that time. Do you, how many of you remember where you were on 9-11? You can, you can think back to that day and you can remember the emotions and the things that just, that, that gripped you on that day. Um, this documentary or thing that they had was, was people who ran around with video cameras or were using phone, I don't know what they were using, but they had footage of people who were taping this and they showed it, some of the footage was for the first time of people and their reactions and their responses and what they were doing and, and just people, I, I mean, just some of the things that there was anger, there was hurt, there was, there was fear, there was, you know, every emotion possible that was going on. But I remember what, what President Bush, when he finally um, got on and he announced to the Americans, he said that Americans must rid the world of, and here's the key terms that, that, that got the criticism, such evil. To me, that was an apt description of that event. Evil. And I remember how many from our academic world, how many from the media, felt that those types of words were inaccurate, that they were unhelpful. In fact, some felt that the, the label of, of terrorist was, was way too harsh because, after all, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. 
In fact, one person said it this way. They said, evil things do happen. The difficulty is knowing where to draw the line. If we are intent on naming evil, then let's just call it tolerance. And President Bush responded to that criticism by saying this. He said, there is a value system that cannot be compromised. God-given values. There, these are not, he said, U.S.-created values. And then he said, it all leads to a larger question of your view of God. I believe he was right. In addressing questions of morality and of values and of ethics and, and right and wrong, we are really asking a question about our view of God. Questions about truth, that, 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 that ultimate underlying reality. Questions about truth are ultimately questions about God. To say that there's no truth or that we cannot know truth is to say that there is no God or at the very least that you cannot know Him. Uh, author and pastor theologian uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said, if as many want us to believe that truth is not objective, in other words, it's not something that is, is that there's no standard, that there's no settled, unmoving, constant, then the truth of God, he says, is not truth at all, but a lie. And then he goes on to say, the word of God contends that there is a truth that transcends the universe. One, I should say one who, but he says one that is the foundation of truth. He's speaking of God. John MacArthur says that God and truth are inseparable. When you talk about truth and absolutes, you are ultimately speaking about God. That's what he said. If there is no truth and it cannot be known, if there is no God and he cannot be known, well, then where do meaning and value and purpose in life, where do they really come from? If there is no God, if there's no, if there's no objective truth, how do we answer the, the great questions of life that we, that we asked earlier? You know, where, do I, where did I come from? Why am I here? Does, does my life have meaning and purpose? Where am I going? What happens when I die? And I think how we answer these questions will determine how we live, it will determine how we think. It will determine how we relate to others. It will, it will, it will uh, dictate the, the, the choices that we make and how I face tragedy and pain and, and, and even death itself. How I answer these questions ultimately will determine what I live for. See, I think these questions aren't optional. I think that they must be answered. Because if there is no God, if there is no underlying truth, if God is dead or if He is unknowable, then, well, where do these answers come from? How do we answer them? How do, how do we truly find meaning in life? Some of you are familiar with Ravi Zacharias. And, and uh, he, uh, he, said, he said this, he said, one thing that theists and anti-theists slash atheists Theist would be you and me. We believe in God. Um, and and anti-theist or atheist. One thing he said that we agree on is that no matter the starting point, we must all attempt to answer the question of life's meaning. That's the one thing that we have that we agree on. Is that no matter the starting point, he said, 
we must all attempt to answer the question of what is the meaning of life. But listen to what, to what an, an avowed atheist, Stephen Jay Gould, once stated. He said this, If there is no God, then we must construct these answers for ourselves. From our own wisdom and from our own ethical sense, there is no other way. In other words, we are free to make up our own morals, to make up our own standards, to make up our own meaning in life. Whatever I want out of life, that's what's going to direct me. That's what's going to guide me. Whether it's pleasure or power or possessions or whatever it is, if, if that's my goal in life, what I do with you or what I do to you in order to achieve that does not matter because life's meanings and life's choices and life's relationships are mine to choose. If God is dead, someone or something must fill that void. If there is no God, then man becomes the measure of all things. As one writer puts it this way, we can endure many a what about life if we could only know the why. We can face life's ups and downs, twists and turns, bumps and bruises, if we know the why of life. Well, I would maybe even say more than that. I would say that it would be a lot easier to determine the value of life if we would establish the where. Where did I come from? How did I get here? And it shouldn't surprise anyone in this room today that there has been an attempt, an attempt by atheists and by moral relativists to answer that question apart from God. Those who reject God turn to their own devices, mainly bad science, to answer the question of our origins. To answer the where and ultimately the why, they run to a belief system known as naturalism or evolutionism. I believe that evolution is the greatest lie of our generation and the generation before us. It is a theory that is unproven. It is unobserved unobservable, it is unrepeatable, and it is the theory that says that all life forms as we know them came through one common ancestor through the process of natural selection. It wants us to believe that life came from non-life and that something came out of nothing uncaused. Evolution wants us to believe that life is here by chance and mindless biological processes and that even our sense of morality, no matter how skewed today, came into existence by trial and error. And when you break that thought process down, it means this, that we came from nothing and we are going to nothing. It means that we have no reason for being except for the, that we are. And therefore, our lives are no more valuable than the animals around us or any of all other part of God's creation. It means that right and wrong, that those, become val and, and that those are value judgments that are left up to individuals and societies, and they are not timeless. So to, to put it in a, in a rough way, that would, and I've heard this, that, that would say that something like rape may be wrong today in our society, in this society, but tomorrow, in a different society, it may be morally acceptable. Those are the things that this leads to. 
And that is a far cry from, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a far cry from humanity being a special act of God's creative genius. That is a far cry from humanity being created in God's image and, 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 light, and in His likeness, and they're having this inherent value that is far above the rest of His creation. If God created, then life is sacred, and it is meaningful, and it is filled with purpose. But if life is just this product of chance, then life ultimately is meaningless and therefore is disposable. Dinesh D'Souza, in his book, What is So Amazing About Christianity, says it this way. He says in the secular account, I, I, I like the description he gives, so I thought I'd just read this because this is just, uh, this is good. In the secular account, he says, you are the descendant of a tiny cell of primordial protoplasm washed up on an empty beach three and a half billion years ago. You are the blind and arbitrary product of time, chance, and natural forces. You are a mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planter in a minute solar system. Uh, solar system in an empty corner of a meaningless universe. You are a purely biological entity, different only in degree, but not in kind from a microbe, a virus, or an amoeba. You have no essence beyond your body, and at death you will cease to exist entirely. In short, you came from nothing and are going nowhere. In the Christian view, he says, you are the special creation of a good and a powerful God. You are created in his image with capacities to think and to feel and to worship that set you above all other life forms. You differ from animals not simply in degree but in kind. Not only is your kind unique, but you are unique among your kind. Your creator loves you so much and so intensely desires your companionship and affection that he has a perfect plan in your life. In addition, God gave the life of his one and only son that you might spend eternity to you. So let me just ask you, does it even matter what we believe? Absolutely. In the Christian view, we have value, we have purpose. The secular view is made up of people who are not even sure that they exist at all. In the Christian view, our thoughts and our actions, they have some consequences. But in the secular view, we are made up of a matter that cannot explain why it is able to think at all. Does it make any difference? Without question, it makes a difference. Because if there is no answer to death, then hopelessness invades our lives. But if we can answer the question of where we're going, it will make a difference in how we live our lives. I want you to hear this. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Philippi. But whatever he says, this is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I consider it a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them, he says, rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness that comes from the law, 
but that that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained it or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. The Apostle Paul, his view of death, his view of life after death, his understanding of resurrection of the resurrection of the dead affected how he viewed life and how he lived life. His, his life had meaning because he looked at it at, at where he came from and he looked at where he was going and ultimately that gave him hope. So let me just take a step back because I realize I'm preaching to the choir. But you know what I really want to do? What I've really wanted to, uh, what I really wanted to do today is very simple. I just want to get us to think about, you know, just get us to think a little bit, you know, about some of these things. In fact, there's, there's a number of things that I really want to, I hope to accomplish in this series. The first is this, is my prayer is that we not only know what we believe, but I think it's very critical that we know why we believe. Ultimately, I think that determines how we live our lives. The second thing that I want to accomplish is that I hope that we will discover that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith, not a blind faith. There are, there are, there is, it has a lot of credibility. Not, it, it has enormous credibility. It is not a fantasy. It is not wishful thinking. But in fact, God's Word gives us objective, rational, solid answers to life's basic questions. And I would add this. Science gives us rational, solid answers to the validity of the Bible. Ultimately, the Christian faith is the only faith. Because evolution is a faith. Atheism is a faith. Christianity is the only faith with answers that make sense. So those two things. And then finally, my hope and my prayer is that we would develop the tools that would help us to be more effective in not only defending our faith, but in sharing the gospel. My heart on things like this is not that we be able to have ammunition so that we can shoot people down on the street. My heart is that we can, make, we can reveal the truth to people so that they can be freed from their chains and that Jesus can take a hold of their lives and make a difference and give them hope for eternity. That should be our hearts. My purpose in this series is very simple. It is because of our grandchildren and our children. It is, you know, I've looked at some startling statistics here, devastating trends. 50 to, 90, 50 to 70 percent, they say, of our young people 
who are raised in the church after they leave for college, or they, after, when they leave for college, they never return to the church. Those are tough statistics. 50 to 70%. We blame it on the universities. But the reality is this. Most of our young people start to decide, this is the thing that hit me right there. Most of our young people decide or start to decide to leave the church when they are in junior high and high school. Let that sink in a little bit. Why? Because the people around them, not only, not, I mean, we're talking parents, we're talking teachers, we're talking even pastors of the church, who when they come to them for questions, this is literally the thing that they've discovered. When they're asking questions about life, those individuals around them say, don't worry about those things, just focus on Jesus, just read your Bible. That's why this is critical. And so they're looking for the answers. They don't get them. They go to school and they hear other things and they start to believe in those lies because we just say, just be good people and focus on Jesus. Historian H.G. Wells, not a professing Christian, he once said this, if all the animals in man evolved, then there were no first parents, meaning Adam and Eve. There was no paradise, no Garden of Eden. There was no fall. Adam and Eve did not sin and did not eat fruit. And if there had not been no fall, then the entire historic fabric of Christianity, the story of the first sin, and the reason for the atonement Jesus coming to die on the cross collapses like a house of cards. Evolution not only denies the truth of the word of God, it denies the need for a savior for our world. We need to know that God exists. We need to know that there is legitimate proof. We, know that we, we need to know that we can trust our Bibles for a, as a guide for our lives. We need to know that the resurrection is something that is real and that there is hope in the person of Jesus. There is much at stake. And I hope and I pray that as we, that all of you will join us as we go through this series. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for challenging us, or challenging me today at least. I pray that we would take this seriously and help me to take it seriously. Help me to, to recognize what's at stake. Because my goal is for my children and, and, and for our children and for all of our grandchildren, for those the people, even our neighbors and the people around us that that they wouldn't have to live in, with fear and with senselessness and purposelessness. And I pray that you would help us to stand up to the devil's schemes. He's sneaky. But God, you are more powerful than he. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I pray that you continue to challenge us this week with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.